0: As inflation cools, how does the CPI print today play into tomorrow's Fed decision? Welcome to Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Tuesday, December 13, 2022. I'm Ash Bennington, joined today by Tony Greer, editor of The Morning Navigator and founder of TG Macro, and my colleague, Andreas Steno-Larsen. Gentlemen, welcome.
1: How are you doing today, Ash?
0: Thank you. I'm, I'm doing great, man. It's great to have the old band back together. We got three of us on this one.
1: Sure is. Andreas, how are you, man?
2: I'm doing good. I had the inflation report uh, smack dab at my forecast today, so I'm happy for once.
1: Right on. It is all about, you know what, why don't I take it from here with a quick wrap, because it's all about that inflation report that we're going to hear more details out of Andreas in a moment. But in terms of the market, let's get a little blurb going. You know, it's today is just a continuation of the ongoing battle of the S&P and the 200-day moving average, the way I see it. Um, You know, we got the data out this morning stock rallies. Uh, the S&P rallies to a high of 41.80, falls back 150 points or so, 130 points by the close. Um, a lot of the leadership today was in sectors that the market is likely short, software, internet stocks, home builders, things like that. Um, You know, a lot of the back and forth comes from, you know, we have to think about where the S&P came from. And I think it's really important to note that the S&P came from the 100 day moving average support level around the bottom of the range at 3950 last week. A lot of stock changed hands. We had tick index lows between minus 1200 and minus 1500 every day of the week. So the sellers were hitting bids and now you've got this big relief rally off of CPI. Um, that's what's interesting to me. We're coming out a little bit in positive territory today. The battle of the S&P and the 200-day goes on. Andreas, I'd love to hear a lot more about the details of CPI today since that's what's driving price action.
0: Yeah, Andreas, jump right in. Tony set the table with the price action, what happened in markets. What was driving it? Well, I guess it it was kind of a surprise
2: to the downside. Um, And as far as I'm concerned, the main concern uh, over the past couple of days was actually a hot CPI print uh, printing above consensus, right? But it came in at 7.1%, so 0.2 percentage points below the Wall Street consensus. Um, And I don't think a single investment bank penciled in 7.1 in their forecast but I did. Um, for once, I was actually right on inflation.
0: Um, you, you absolutely you absolutely nailed it, man.
2: Yeah. Um,
0: but I think that's the first time in a while. So uh, <laughs> no <laughs> need to party. <laughs> but uh, let it- me point something out just to give people a little bit of context on what this number means. Uh, so month over month, 0.1. Year over year, 7.1. What's interesting about this is on month over month and year over year, it's below prior below consensus and below consensus range. So as you point out, uh, considerably below where the expectation was. Yeah,
2: exactly. Uh, And the interesting thing here is that we have uh, a clear divergence between the inflation in goods, so in physical goods, and inflation in services. Um, so if we bring up chart one, Brian, um, it's now crystal clear that we have diverging trends in uh, goods and services. Uh, and I guess the Fed is usually mostly scared of service inflation, since it is the part of the inflation basket that is the stickiest, uh, since it's driven a lot by wages. Um, and therefore, this is not necessarily a Good cocktail for the Federal Reserve, even though the headline number looks compelling if you buy into the pivot story for for the Federal Reserve early next year. But if we look a bit ahead, uh, I'd like to show you just a couple of leading indicators for goods inflation. Um, The one I tend to uh, trust the most is the um, development in freight rates from China to L.A., basically. Um, That is a good gauge of where goods inflation is heading. Um, and if we look at the most recent development in freight rates, um, it's crystal clear that we have disinflation, if not outright deflation in goods by now. Um, and if you look at uh, chart three, Brian, I can show a very concrete example of actual deflation now. So if we look at the used cars category of the um, consumer basket, it is now dropping in price also uh, in the consumer price index. We've basically known it for a while if um, if we follow auctions such as the Mannheim index. But in any case, we actually have deflation in various goods by now, an, uh, an outright fall in prices. So overall, um, I think this is a decent report Um, and i think it's fair that the market uh, shaved off a bit of expectations for the federal reserve into the early parts of next year almost a full hike is now priced out relative to before the cpi report Um, and eventually the big discussion is whether the vanilla reaction of buying equities as a consequence of lower inflation is the right thing to do and i'm not sure
0: so we're going to get a deep dive from Tony on markets in just one second, Andreas, but I want to ask a couple of follow-up questions that I think folks may be wondering. First, what exactly is the difference between goods and services inflation? What do they betoken? What does each one mean? What does it suggest? And second, uh, that China to US freight rates versus goods inflation, striking correlation, obviously, between that uh, those two uh, data series. What exactly does it mean? Why is it following that way? Are we seeing uh, effectively inflation decline with a decline in international trade? Or is the correlation suggesting something else to you? But first, uh, what does it mean, difference between goods and services inflation? What's it mean for the economy?
2: Well, uh, first of all, goods are obviously physical in nature. Um, So it's a car. uh, It's something you buy in Walmart, right? Um, And therefore, these goods they tend to be more cyclical um, and often when we see an economy losing steam uh, this is sort of the first part of the economy to showcase it um, while the service sector is is much more wage driven um, it's basically uh, very driven by healthcare and education um, so those are obviously two sectors of the economy very reliant on people being present uh for the service right uh, so therefore this is uh, a part of the economy that moves more slowly uh, and you should expect that part of the economy to to move with a clear time lag to what's going on in goods so when the price of goods drops i think it's an early warning signal to expect something to happen to the price of services maybe in two three four quarters from now but not until then when we look at uh, freight rates from China to the US, Um, I think the reason why we have such a clear correlation to the price of goods is that uh, China is essentially the manufacturing hub of the world. Uh, And when the transportation cost is very elevated um, from China to the US, it it ends up being uh, a part of the uh, ultimate price in Walmart uh, and other stores. Uh, due to a, a high cost of the supply chain, basically. Uh, and therefore, the, it is really good news that the um, that the freight rate is, is dropping. Uh, I'm not necessarily sure that it's because all of the supply chain issues are gone, but it's, um, it's basically driven by a lack of demand for transportation now, ultimately because households, they buy less goods.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting to have a trader and an economist on the show at the same time to equally important but very different ways of looking at the world. Tony, you heard the deep dive there from Andreas. Uh, what are the market signals telling you?
1: Yeah, you know, to pick up um, <clears throat> where we locked in, left off in that S&P discussion, uh, it's worth noting we shouldn't be shocked that the S&P fell at the highs and backed off. Tom Thornton, one of our other outstanding presenters and contributors, um, has mentioned that the S&P reached that sequential D mark 13 um, which is, you know, a reversal type of price action. So let's see if the S&P can hang in here. But broadly speaking, there was a huge rally in the bond market, right? Ten-year notes had one of their biggest updates in a while. It yields back and way off to the bottom of the range. We had an interesting rally in the crypto market that I want to hear more from you on in a second. Uh, obviously, the uh, that headline is taking up all the oxygen in the room. Uh, yeah, exactly. But it is a... Um, you know, the most the most interesting trade for my purposes is that the commodities trade with the dollar index falling back towards the lows has come quite a bit back to life. It's given me confidence to put some more money to work in that space. Um, I have to say I was highly motivated by a great piece I saw on, I think it was CNBC with Mark Fisher, uh, where he gave um, – You know, basically because several reasons why the market looks so good to them. Now, they bought everything across the board. You know, they bought oil, they bought natural gas, they bought diesel fuel and things like that. And I I went down the list of reasons and a lot of it makes a lot of sense, you know, if you are still – like I am, you know, an energy bull thinking that we are in the early innings of that energy bull trade. So that's the rundown for me, you know, Bloomberg Commodities Index rallies, Bitcoin rallies, stocks rally, bonds rally. I mean, it's a pretty interesting day to be alive today. Why don't you tell us about one of the bigger headlines that's come across the tape in the last, I don't know, 100 years?
0: Yeah, I mean, talking about interesting days to be alive. This is uh, this is really a hell of a day uh, over in crypto. We had a lot of things happen, obviously, uh, simultaneously. Sam Bankman-Fried getting arrested in the Bahamas uh, last night. Then we have the indictment unsealed in the Southern District of New York. This is the criminal uh, complaint from uh, the Department of Justice. Additionally, we've got CFTC and SEC filing civil lawsuits against Sam Bankman-Fried. Uh, and then finally, we've got this. Uh, we've got the show up on the Hill uh, with John Ray being the guest of honor now that Sam Bank free isn't able to attend the House Financial Services Committee hearing, uh, talking about what's happening there. Look, you know, all of the the things that people have been following this case uh, have been following for some time now. Actually, proved uh, in the indictment, eight well, proved in that they've been they've finally been charged. Obviously, innocent until proven guilty. Uh, he hasn't yet been arraigned, let alone tried. Uh, but eight counts of fraud and conspiracy, conspiring to depra- fraud the United States government to violate campaign finance laws, wire fraud on lenders and customers. Uh, John Ray, this is the new CEO of FTX, called it an old-fashioned embezzlement scheme. You know, there's a lot of stuff happening here. There are a lot of moving parts. you know, Some of the greatest hits were run before us today on the Hill and in those documents that came out. No independent board of directors, personal loans going uh, from the company directly to management with very little documentation. You know, No governance, no reporting in place. The holding of SamCoin, so-called, on the balance sheet. Uh, these are the assets created, spun up by Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX being used on the balance sheet at FTX. Just a ton of stuff that's happening out there. And for me, the really shocking thing about all of this, you know, we've heard all of these allegations before, but listening to John Ray, uh, and this is a story that hasn't gotten a whole lot of public, uh, a whole lot of pickup uh, on the news cycle, probably because there's just so damn much going on today. But listening to John Ray describe FTX uh, and uh, its leadership, it, it's hard to come away with any other impression uh, but a startling incompetence in the way that this company was run. You know, I mean, there's this thesis out there that, uh, you know, the conspiracy theorists that know this was the smartest guy in the room and he was running this colossal fraud obviously these are allegations this is speculation but that he was you know he was really on top of it it just seems like the entire management structure of that company uh was asleep at the switch again all allegations that have yet to be proven in a court of law but there's a lot of evidence out there uh some of it uh, i think it's fair to say uh is pretty damning again we're gonna have to wait to see what happens as this plays out at trial uh but again Stunning incompetence. I mean, they were using Slack and QuickBooks. They were using QuickBooks, man. I mean, if your kid starts cutting the lawn and you want to introduce him to accounting, uh, maybe a Vayner. They were QuickBooks. They were running a thirty-two billion dollar company using QuickBooks. I, I just, you know, I don't know where to begin with that. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Brief.
3: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Okay. <laughs> uh, oh.
2: let, let me ask you a follow-up question, Ash, because, uh, I mean, I watched the Twitter space with Sam Bankman-Fried yesterday or listened to it rather. Um, and it seems to me as if Right about everyone in this sector was kind of awaiting his arrest, right? Um, so can the market now sort of breathe a sigh of relief after he's actually arrested?
0: I wish the answer to that question were a loud and resounding yes. But the reality is uh, this is part of a a very much a a broader, bigger picture story. Look, this goes back to May with the collapse of the Terra Luna ecosystem. uh, And then we had uh, the collapse of Three Arrows Capital, a very large hedge fund in the space. uh, And, you know, obviously FTX then followed suit. The instability around FTX brought out some other fissures in the system. Specifically, I'm thinking of two here. Uh, Number one, the one that's been better documented uh, which is uh, which is uh, DCG Digital Currency Group's Genesis uh, Trading uh, Genesis uh, platform. Uh, Genesis is a significant liquidity provider in the space. When they halted redemptions a number of weeks ago in the wake of FTX, we had Gemini. I know these are very confusing sounding names; they sound alike. Uh, Gemini is the shop run by the Winklevoss brothers. Uh, these are the two twins who founded uh, or co-founded Facebook with Mark Zuckerberg, famously in the social network. Uh, they then had to halt redemptions because the liquidity provision that was cutting out of Genesis got shut down. Now. DCG is a very large uh, holding company in the crypto space. They own CoinDesk. They also own uh, Grayscale Investments, who are the management company of GBTC, Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. This is the largest largest closed-end fund in the space. It's got some $10 billion in Bitcoin, I think about 600,000 Bitcoin under management, uh, there are questions uh, now being asked about the fundamental stability of this. Uh, Financial Times reported a $900 million hole in the balance sheet. Coindesk, which is part of this DCG umbrella, uh, came forth about 24 hours later and said, no, that's only one class of creditors or depositors. It was a little unclear from the reporting. It's actually 1.8 billion, and that's just two classes. There's a third class of creditor that we don't know what they're owed. Uh, so obviously, there's some the, something of a, of, a, of a cash crunch there. Uh, Barry silver who runs DCG, is trying to raise money for that now. Look, we're not saying uh, that this is the next shoe to drop, the next domino to fall. Uh, there's certainly an outcome here uh, that could be more favorable where DCG raises additional capital. Uh, and this, uh, this, goes, uh, this goes well uh, going forward. But look, GBTC right now is trading at basically 52 cents on the dollar. It's trading at a 48% discount uh, to net asset value or thereabout uh, as we have this conversation. So there definitely is the potential, potential, we don't know again for additional risk in the space. Finally, uh some reporting about uh challenges over at uh Binance uh breaking today. Um, about you know, about the about the the fundamental activities that are happening over there. I don't want to say too much about it because the reporting is very early, but suffice to say that there are those who are writing about this, and I'm thinking about Uh, Coindesk here, a reputable source on this, uh, raising some questions, let's just say. Uh, So unfortunately, Andreas, the the short answer, or I guess the very long answer to that question is uh, it's not yet time to breathe a sigh of relief. There are all of these sort of questions that are hanging out there. I wish I could say yes, man.
2: Yeah. But what what I find really interesting is that we get a rally um, in the crypto space on a day of disinflation, right? In the CPI report, uh, because we've obviously had the discussion over the past 24 months whether it is an inflation hedge or not. Uh, And to me, we get more and more evidence that it's actually almost a reverse inflation hedge, right? Or it's rather linked... To the liquidity cycle of central banks. So the reason why crypto rallies today seen from an economist perspective is that the hope of new liquidity additions next year also rose today.
0: Oh, yeah, 100%. I'm going to let Tony talk to this point uh, to get a, the view of a trader in just a second here. Uh, but I think that's exactly right. Look, the reality is the, the correlation between uh, the, the NASDAQ uh, and, uh, and Bitcoin is is extraordinary. And you're, you're exactly right. It's all about central bank liquidity. The notion uh, that Bitcoin uh, is going to be an inflation hedge, I don't want to say it's not true. I just want to say it hasn't come true yet. You know, there may be some indefinite point in the future where we have large, uh, you large, know, high sustained inflation in the United States and, and where it becomes this off-the-grid asset. Uh, but frankly, uh, that that scenario that that just hasn't played out. That's just a, a fact uh, that uh, the data will tell us. But I'm I'm curious because I know Tony looks at this as a risk asset. Uh, Tony, what do you think about that?
1: Well, I mean, I'm most intrigued by the percentage of upside that we could see here in cryptocurrency. Um, You know, I'm not deep in the weeds of trading it. I'm I'm, uh, very much a spectator. So when I see journal headlines like, you know, the effective price of cryptocurrency, maybe zero after all. Um, I see the blow up on the screen of FTX and SBF. You know, generally speaking, that's how bottoms are formed. Then you get the reaction today that whether we like it or not, there's a two sigma rally in Bitcoin right up to moving average resistance. know kind of coincides with me with the way that it's trying to elbow its way into the macro picture Mm. if i consider that you know high rates are what blew bitcoin apart then rates backing off in any way shape or form may be a setup to provide some tailwinds for bitcoin if the time is right feels like today was one of those times that uh you know as a macro trader you have to raise your eyebrow Big headline comes out, inflation-related headline, inflation slightly easier than expected. You know, you get a stock rally, a bond rally, a commodity rally, crypto participates. You know, it's just worth noting because if crypto gets through, I'm I'm talking about obviously Bitcoin and Ethereum are the only cryptocurrencies that I ever even traffic in or look at or not laugh at. Um, When they get above their moving averages, I mean, the upside, the sky's the limit again, figuratively speaking. But- these are the trades that are worth hunting down from my perspective just for the gain, the percent of gains and for the level that sentiment is bombed out on the downside. So that's how I'm looking at it. It's a good opportunity.
0: Hey, Tony, talking of eyebrows, weeds, and commodities, let's talk about something you're eyebrow deep in the weeds on, which is oil. WTI, Jan 23, CL1, New York, Merck, crude right now, uh, closing out the day. Looks like 75.43 on my screen up, uh, about 3% on the day. What's going on with oil? What's the thesis there? How are you thinking about it?
1: Man, I think there's a lot going on behind the scenes in oil, Ash, is what I think. You know, um, a federal judge dropped a case against um, MBS this week, I believe it was, you know, for the death of Jamal Khashoggi. Somehow oil falls $10 in and around while that is happening You know, while that is happening, there is the China-Saudi Arabia, you know, handshake that wouldn't end if you saw that MBS and Xi Jinping couldn't let go of each other by the time the goddamn weekend was over. So they must have made some really lucrative agreements with each other. I would love to have been a fly on the wall for that discussion. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, the China reopening looks like one of the fortune headline that I love. China reopening is going to be a gas guzzler which, you know, is likely the way the market is going to perceive it if China is going to step off the gas on that zero COVID policy. Um, You know, I heard they finally gave their uh, apps, the phone apps, some, um, you know, activity back. So those are the things that are kind of the back and forth that I see in the markets. I see a lot going on behind the scenes. But when I see Mark Fisher get that excited about, you know, the upside, and then I see a lot of other stars line up like we saw today, you know, I'm starting to think that we're towards the end of this sell off in oil. Um, sentiment is definitely getting bombed out. Open interest is, continues to fall. So, this is a trade that once again, you know, the upside percentage gains are really worth looking at from my perspective. So, I'm just going to be dialed into that, uh, Ash, for the rest of the year, see how the rotation in equities plays out. I'm still keen on the fact that energy stocks are probably going to go out on their highs and tech stocks are going to go out on their lows. We'll see how that transpires and shakes out the S&P. But it spells to me that the S&P has kind of got rocky road ahead. So that's why I'm keeping my eyes open to, you know, what's going on in the commodity market specifically again, what's going on in crypto again. I just think that uh, trading the S&P is going to be an uphill battle for the next several months. So I just want to make sure that I'm getting off the next year started on the right foot.
0: Yeah, well said. Uh, We're going to get to viewer questions in just a second. I'm sure there's going to be lots of follow-up. I see the chat on YouTube is flowing fast and quick. Uh, Listen, I want to flip the script over to Andreas. Andreas, a little bit of context from the macro perspective. Tony talked a little bit about the macro implication of oil. He talked about Saudi Arabia and China. How are you thinking about it? How do you see it? What's happening in terms of consumption? What's happening in terms of supply? How do you think about oil? We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing.
2: Well, first of all, I think we need to watch the development in the US dollar right now, uh, since it is so important for the broad commodity outlook. We we all know that we have a scarcity of energy right now across the globe, uh, but what's really driving the move into next year, if you ask me, is the demand side. And currently the demand side is relatively weak as we see weakness in the energy intensive sectors, um, such as manufacturing and industries, right? But in any case, if we get that dollar weakness and we get a rebound in the global economy into say the second or third quarter next year, then I guess all stars align for the long energy case. There is a scarcity of supply. The demand will rebound and the dollar will likely weaken in such a scenario. That's all you need to buy energy. <laughs> that's, that, that's, not my, that's not my table.
1: <laughs> ah, all right, fine. I like your long-term view, though.
0: I wanted to shift gears here and go to our questions because we've got a lot of them coming in uh, fast and thick. First one comes to us from John Merlino from YouTube, Uh, and the question is, what does it mean if the Fed holds 5% 6 to 12 months? A little context here, obviously, uh, John talking about the federal funds rate right now, federal funds rate target upper limit set at 4, so that would be another 100 bips up from here. What does it mean if they hold at 5, and is that your expectation, guys?
2: Well, I can start. Uh, I mean, given market pricing right now, uh, it would be really bad news for bonds if they actually uh, kept interest rates at 5% uh, for a prolonged period. That's it, It's basically what they've been trying to tell us that they uh, intend on doing. Uh, the issue is that it's very, very tricky to pause at a plateau for a central bank, Uh, you always get questions on whether you move in one or the other direction. um, And therefore you very uh, rarely see these plateaus um, in in interest rates. Uh, So my best guess is that it will be politically tricky to actually plateau the interest rate for a prolonged period of time,
1: even though it is their intention right now.
0: Tony, anything to add to that?
1: Uh, the only thing that I can add to that is uh, around f- f- uh, Fed Chair, Res- uh, Federal Reserve Chairman Powell's comment, um, I guess shortly after his, was it an FOMC meeting or he was just making comments when he said, uh, talking about rate hikes, and he opened the door to a little bit easier policy when he said, you know, we don't want to crash the economy. You know, as it turned out, that that comment was like, you know, the new dovish call and risk assets really got a lift out of there. And sort of that was what helped, I think, lift them, you know, or at least prevent them from breaking down last week is that premise that we may have, you know, a softer stance sooner rather than later or something like that. But this is where you got to give the Federal Reserve a little credit in engineering this equity bounce off of the bottom, because I think that they know that, you know, higher yields is what is the enemy of the equity market and sort of giving a glimpse that they're stepping off the gas While they were just literally flooring it to the fact that they were going to fight inflation with higher rates, any sort of step off the gas is interpreted by risk assets as game on. So that's really interesting to see how they've concocted that atmosphere from several weeks ago. We were staring at the S&P 3500 offered, thinking it was about to collapse another 10 percent. So it's just interesting to follow the market that way.
0: Hey, Tony, I know we said viewer questions. I guess I'm a viewer, too. This is the question I want to ask you if I were out in the audience. Uh, Big picture question, which is this. You know, I've been in the crypto space eyebrow deep for the last couple of months, and I come over and I look at what's happening in macro. I look at what's happening in markets. And it seems to me when I look at the daily news cycle, when I read the market summaries, it's basically up and down based on data suggesting whether inflation is coming in hot, coming in cold. It's all about this play uh, for what's happening with the Fed. Is there anything else that you're watching in markets now? Does anything else matter? Is this the only game in town?
1: Man, that's a really good point. yeah, I, I have to say that I see it through a little bit of a different lens where I see a lot of technical dynamics panning out, mm. right? Like, and when I say that this is the ongoing battle of the s and p at the 200 day moving average, I mean the s and p is trading like clockwork uh, at some level for me where, you know it's giving me positive signals by breaking up through the 50, then 100, then 200 day moving average, right? And then it's natural that after such a big rally, it would fail there. So where does it pull back to? It pulls right back to only the 100-day moving average, which is about 150 points below there. When it really looked like it was about to curl over like a tsunami, you know. So that that proves that you know whoever's telling might be telling you that moving averages is voodoo. Show them the recent S&P chart because we're bobbling in between moving averages here. Definitely coiling up for a bigger move that I plan on going with hook, line, and sinker once I'm convinced it's happening. Um, I'm just not convinced that the market's giving me enough signal to say whether we're breaking higher or breaking lower yet. So I've got a pretty balanced book. I've got a pile of dry powder uh, stacked to the rafters, and I'm waiting for this thing to break.
0: I mean, it sounds like the battle of the Somme. It's trench warfare around the 200-day moving average. Every time you get a new data point, pushes above, pushes below, and then they can fight it back and forth.
1: Exactly it. And like I said before, man, there's a lot of stock changing hands here. It's getting really, really interesting in a number of sectors, you know, that the energy sector will barely back off the highs. Social media can barely social media and cannabis can barely get off the lows. I mean, we are seeing a real dichotomy of sector performance this year that I think is going to open up for another interesting year that way next year. I just haven't decided how the dice are going to fall just yet.
0: All right, here's a great question uh, from one of our regular viewers, Ralph H, from the Real Vision website. Uh, This is a great one for Andreas. How correlated is the Shanghai Containerized Freight Index to the Baltic Dry Index? Boy, that's one I have no idea on.
2: Well, I, I don't know the exact number, but they should be. Uh, correlated right Um, so if you look at the most recent development they've actually moved in the same direction right so i guess um, over time you would expect a pretty decent correlation if not one then at least plus 75 or thereabout Um, one thing i would like to add in this discussion of um, a lower price level of goods and a lower price uh, level of freight rates is that it's not necessarily good news for companies um I guess the vanilla conclusion is to expect companies to fare better, given that the price pressure in the supply chain eases. Uh, But if we bring up chart five, Brian, um, I think that's the most important chart to show today after we've received uh, another inflation report pointing south is that when the PPI drops, so the uh, producer um, price index, it's actually a early warning signal that the earnings per shares will Mm -hmm. drop as well. So why is that? Well, I actually think it's driven by the pricing power in various macro regimes. So what happened during the spring was that right about every company uh, managed to increase margins uh, since the demand was strong enough to um, to cope with it, while uh, it was a window of, of opportunity since the inflation was running hot, right? The opposite happens now. Um, you have a wage pressure intact still while um, the end consumers not willing necessarily to pay as much uh, for the goods, uh, which leads to a margin compression uh, as a consequence of a lack of demand at the end user level, even though the wage pressure is, is pretty hot. So it means that the margin is under pressure both from the top side due to a lack of price power and from the bottom due to a wedge, wage
0: pressure among employees. Thanks, Andreas. Uh, here's one from Laura Laser, someone with a cool screen name from YouTube. Uh, this is one for you, Tony. Uh, what are the best stocks or ETFs following consumer services versus goods? Do you think about the world that way or is not that not a scam you think about?
1: Uh, not exactly the way I look at the world, no. I mean, the only consumer dichotomy that I look at is consumer staples and consumer discretionary. Uh, those are worth watching for me at times, but I don't know that I can directly answer that question. Oh, no. sorry.
0: Well, t- talk a little bit about what you said there, discretionary versus uh, versus a uh, luxury,
1: yeah. Um, you know consumer discretionary names are names uh, you know that are generally pro-cyclical names. You know, when the economy gets going, you'll see um, the consumer with a little bit of expendable cash in his pocket, you'll see consumer discretionary names you know generally outperform while staples just get stuck in that, you know, mired in that, you know, low multiple type of sideways trading. Um, and then conversely, when markets go into recession and people, uh, the consumer has a lot less expendable income, you'll see the consumer discretionary names perfor- underperform consumer staples, which are your Procter and & Gamble's and your razor blade makers, which in a time of risk-off and, you know, the S&P – shifting where the biggest portions of the S&P are trading lower, generally, people are running to consumer staples or utilities or sectors like that to hide out in. So they generally perform better during those types of scenarios. I hope that helped, Ash.
0: Yeah, that does make sense. Uh, This is an interesting question. comes to us from Paul E. from the Real Vision website. Uh, Tony, how will the Keystone Pipeline leak affect the oil market in the next one to three months? Any thoughts? Of course, this is about the Keystone Pipeline leak uh, in Kansas.
1: Yeah, you know, it's definitely relevant. Um, The headline I was just wondering, I wanted to grab to have in front of me. If the Keystone Pipeline outage lasts for more than 10 days, it could push Cushing, Oklahoma, storage levels to an operational minimum of 20 million barrels, right? Which is like the idea that that is the risk right now, which would send crude spreads into God knows what stratosphere, the fact that that is the risk at right now, it was the biggest Keystone Pipeline leak in all 20 prior leaks combined, essentially. So it was just a massive leak. And we still have no idea what happened or why or how it happened. You know, all we have in the rearview mirror is the price action response. And directly when the news came out, if you remember, there was a $5 rally, essentially, from 71 to 76 and then there was a $5 sell off to immediately follow to a new low of around $70 and change. So that told you that, you know, uh, uh, this oil being spilt in Kansas is not enough to, you know, change the dynamic of the technical forces bearing down on the crude oil complex. Um, that's definitely a major issue right now. But in terms of how the Keystone Pipeline gets re- resolved, it's something definitely to keep an eye on. It's something to keep an eye on that it is threatening, pushing supply. And at the same time, you just had calendar spreads pull back from $2 dollars backward to a quarter or 25 cents contango, right? which is a scenario that you generally do not see when crude oil is this tight and inventories are this low. So it looks like there could be opportunities in that, Type of trade all across the board, so this is really worth monitoring. While I don't think that it is a, um, you know, an an event that's going to knock five or ten dollars off price either way, it's definitely worth noting within the uh, flow of the narrative. You know how you might want to begin to pick your stocks coming out of here.
0: Yeah, we got to wrap in just one second here, but I wanted to send one more question down to Andreas because it's a terrific big picture question. The question comes to us from Charles Patton from YouTube, do you think the markets will now turn to focusing on recession instead of inflation? Uh, It's a great question to end the day with. And also, Andreas, big picture, high level for people who may not know, what might that look like in your view?
2: Well, I I guess it's it's spot on that question because I think the reason why we see slowing inflation is that the recession is looming, right? It is due to a lack of demand for goods, which is the first hint that we get uh, that the economy is cooling off quite rapidly. Uh, So ultimately, we will end up focusing on the recession. But I think we need to see signs of weakness in the service sector and the labor market before we really trust that the recession is here, right? We've talked about it for... I don't know, 12, 18 months already. Um, And yet we haven't got a confirmation that the recession is actually here. And I frankly don't think it is. Uh, So for now, no, we're not going to talk about the recession until we get more firm evidence that the labor market is not doing well.
0: Yeah, very well said. Uh, I know we have to wrap here, but I want to give final thoughts, key takeaways to both of you. Uh, Andreas, first to you, final thoughts, key takeaways.
2: Well, first of all, um, inflation is coming down now, um, and the big question is now whether the Fed will acknowledge this and accept that the rate hike that they are going to deliver tomorrow will be the last one in this cycle. I tend to lean that way by now, but ultimately, the big risk here is that the Fed turns around too early, uh, because I think we have a load of issues that we haven't resolved on the supply side. So just because of a few quarters of weak demand, we shouldn't turn around and bring interest rates back to zero. That would be a catastrophe and that would bring bring inflation back up, but I'm scared of that scenario.
0: If you're under 40, Google the name Arthur Burns, and you'll hear yes. all about that tale. Uh, Tony Greer, always a pleasure to be doing this with you, man. It's been too long. Uh, final thoughts, key takeaways.
1: Yeah, man, I guess real quick, I'm, I'm still um, dying to, figure out how the S&P battle at the 200-day, you know, resolves itself. Because once it does, there's going to be several hundred points of trending to latch onto. This has been an ongoing battle for, you know, probably two and a half, three weeks now. And, you know, for a technician, it just makes it really difficult to make decisions when the S&P is bobbling around the moving averages, not giving an indication of trend. So once I'm looking forward to that, I've got all my focus on the energy market. I think that all the opportunity is still there. You know, as you'll notice, the stocks haven't backed much off the highs, even though crude oil repriced from 100 to 75. That's really encouraging to me. And it sets up really well for a lot of, a lot of opportunity next year. So I'm excited no matter what happens for the next couple of weeks.
0: Uh, Andreas, Tony, this is fantastic, man. I love this show. Economist, trader. This is like the best of both worlds.
1: Slash Bennington. <laughs> Cue the guns and roses, man.
0: We got to buy the rights, man. Buy the
1: fucking rights, come on.
0: <laughs> we'll send the bill to So
1: Send the bill to Ralph. That's what I'm talking about.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Guys, awesome. Really great being with both of you here today. Uh, and fantastic hosting the show, man. The fans are just incredible. We get like this. It's just running stream here uh, in the uh, Twitter, uh, in the, rather in the YouTube commentary. And it's just like super fun to watch while hosting. Uh, so thank you, everybody, again, for watching. Uh, Andreas and Darius Dale will be back tomorrow. Take
1: awesome. care. Good afternoon. Great job. Great job, Slash.